my goodness. Good to see everybody, no matter how you're with us. Now, I just have to address really quick, because there's a bunch of people joining us all over, but I have to address really quick. Those that are here for our indoor worship offering, love you guys. Thanks for being here. This is amazing. This is really cool. It's been a year. And uh, if you're watching online, if you are uh, outside right now at our outdoor uh, venue, we love you guys. We're glad that you're here. But uh, this is pretty cool, don't you think? I'm loving it, loving being here, loving getting to worship with you. So wherever you are, just want to say good morning to you. Now, this is Palm Sunday, and everybody said? Amen. Amen. I, you know, I've been missing call and response. I've been talking to a kid, so it's pretty nice. It is the day that we commemorate Jesus coming into Jerusalem, as Pastor Kyle said. The day that Jesus is hailed as king, knowing that he was going to die. Now, This is one week before Easter, and in every one of the Gospels, if you read the various Gospels, there are three of them that tell this story. You see almost immediately that Jesus goes to the temple, and you see that he's not just coming to Jerusalem as king. On Palm Sunday, no, 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 he's coming to the temple as king. And what Jesus does in the temple, you just read it, it seems so absolutely strange because follow me here. Here you have the gentle Jesus, you have the meek and the mild Jesus, you have this Jesus who said in this scripture that you'll see coming up on the screen, come to me all ye that labor and are heavy burdened or laden. He says, for I'm meek and I'm lowly of heart. But here you have this Jesus coming in and he's whooping people. And the Bible tells us this in Matthew, in Mark, in John. They all talk about this. And when you put all of these gospel accounts together, it gives lots of details. Let's go over some of them. It says first that he made whips out of cords. He hit people. He threw over money changers tables. He threw over the animal seller's tables. He yelled. And by the way, this is the only recorded act of violence by Jesus in history. And it is such a radical act. It is such a violent act that most people in his day, and you probably today, you read the story, you're thinking, why? Because it provokes questions. What is this act even supposed to mean? What does the temple mean? What does the cleansing of the temple mean? And guys, I'm just going to say to you, this is hard. These are hard questions. Because the temple, of course, you know and I know it doesn't exist today. It was destroyed years and years ago in Jerusalem. Now, if you want to get an idea of what the temple looked like, here's a picture that you can see of the first century temple. And, uh, but that's not even what it looks like today, of course. Here's a picture of what it looks like today. This is the Temple Mount. And by the way, real soon we're going to start advertising our 2022 Israel trip. Um, and so we're really excited about that going together. So save your money. Because this is one of the, in fact, John, do me a favor. Go back to that picture of this Temple Mount. If you go with us, all the places I've marked, the Mount of Olives, the wilderness there, the Kidron Valley, the Temple Mount, we go to all of these places when we go to Israel. But I want you to get a look. If you're looking at an aerial view, I want you to see how big the temple was. Now let's go back to that first century look of the temple. This is the place Now, today, when you hear of a temple, you tend to think of it, I tend to think of it like a cathedral or a church, but it's not. In fact, what you're going to see in a minute is the reason that you had money changers and sellers in this temple was because Jews 
no matter where they were in the world, had to come back to the temple at least once a year. Why? Because there were two things that happened at the temple that happened nowhere else in the world. So to really understand, this is where we got to start. So I want to talk to you about these things. So if you have your notes, you have your pens, take them out. Write the, we're going to go through these quickly. Write these things down wherever you are. Let's talk about what happened in the temple. First, the temple is the place where you meet God face to face. Where you actually meet God face to face. In other words, it's the place for a personal encounter. By the way, this is the reason why when David was exiled from the temple, he said, God, my God, I search for you. He says, I thirst for you like someone in a dry and empty land where there's no water. He says, I've seen you in the temple and I've seen your strength and glory. Why? Because he misses the experience of God. He misses the presence of God and he knows the only place I can get the presence of God is in the temple. And so, of course, we talk about this and people say, well, wait a minute, I thought God was everywhere. And I just say in answer to that, yes, that's true. His presence is everywhere and you do see his glory everywhere. But what you have to understand in the first century and all through the Old Testament is that the temple is where a very special revelation of God was made. Not just vaguely, not just generally, but it's where his experience His sacramental presence, his profound presence was experienced in a life-altering kind of way. Guys, listen, this is why later the psalmist, take a look at the scripture, the psalmist would say, why gaze with envy, you mountain peaks, at the mountain God desired for his dwelling? Why? Because that's where the temple is, that every other mountain would be jealous. Because this is where the presence of God came. And this is where God dwelt in the middle of the, holies of, of the holy of holies. His presence is right there. Now, that's the first thing that happened. It's the place where you'd meet God. But to understand the temple, you've got to understand the second thing. And that's this. Write this down. The temple is the place where you made sacrifice. The temple is the place where you made sacrifice. Why? Because if the temple was the place where you were going to meet God face to face, then it also had to be the place of sacrifice. By the way, this is why they were selling animals. Because you had to have sacrifices of blood to make atonement for sin. Listen, you can't approach God in any old way. You can't go into God and just say, oh, hi, God. You can't do that. If you wanted to meet him, you had to, there had to be a sacrifice. Now, I'm going to say, I say this to people today, and of course they wonder, well, why? Why is that true? And one of the ways to understand this is remembering how biblical religion is different from anything else in its day. In fact, biblical religion is different from any other religion today. And in this day especially, because you see, it was neither Eastern nor Western religion. Now it's interesting because Israel was kind of on the peninsula, right in the middle between the East and the West. But here's what you look at. You look at Eastern religion, and in Eastern religion, they believed that God was absolute, but not personal. God was just an absolute force, but he was not a person that you could talk to or love. Listen, you could have a mystical experience with God. You can have a mystical oneness, or you can have some kind of ecstatic experience and meditation to kind of relate to this God force, but God wasn't a person in Eastern religion that you could talk to. Now, in the West, let's go to the other side. 
In the West, in Greece, in Rome, in Europe, they understood, no, 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 God is personal, but God's not infinite. But the gods weren't perfect. God, the gods had their squabbles. The gods were petty. They had their fights, but they were personal. So you've got to understand what's happening here with Israel. In the East, you have an infinite God, but not personal. In the West, you have a personal God, but not infinite. But here comes the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible reveals himself as something infinitely more complex and rich than either of those conceptions. Why? Because God is both personal and infinite. God is both loving and holy. God is transcendent and yet imminent. And so, because he's personal, well, you can meet God face to face, but because God is also infinite, he is holy and he is absolute, you can't just go in in any old way. You have to deal with sin. Now, guys, listen to me. This is what the temple is all about. And I know what someone may be thinking as they're listening to this right now. You're thinking, what a primitive, archaic view of God. It seems like God is cranky that he would require blood. It seems like God is angry. And you say, I don't think I'd like to think of a God that way. See, pastor, I believe in a God of love. What kind of God is that? Now, just to illustrate this, I want to give you an example right out of the Bible that you see several times, but I'm going to modernize it just for a second. Let's just say that you adopted a child. You have an adopted child, and you raised her up. And it was a lot of work, as you know. If any, how many of you raised kids? Come on, give me a show of hands. There you go. All right, lots of people have raised kids. I even see you online, believe it or not. Okay. And it's a lot of work to raise kids. It is a tremendous cost. You put your whole life into it. And let's say that you raise her up and that she gets to be college age and you take out your life savings to send her to college. Everything you've ever earned and she goes off. Any parents relate to this? <laughs> yeah, a few of you. And she goes off. But here's the crazy thing about her. She disappears. She leaves. She never shows up at college. And then you find out she's drawn all the money out of the bank. In fact, you discover over the next few months from various sources that, man, she's living the high life. On whose money? Your money. She's spending it on frivolous stuff. She's spending it on luxuries. She's squandering it away. Now, what would happen? Let me ask you. What would happen if a year or so later, she shows up, she walks into your house, and she sits down and just starts chatting? Hi, how are you? I haven't seen you. What's new with you? What are you going to do? What if she acted like that had never happened? What are you going to say? Well, I'm going to tell you what you're going to say. You're going to go, hold it. Well, you can't just come in here and start talking as if nothing's wrong, as if nothing's happened. What about what you've done? You have to deal with the breach. There's a betrayal. Now, if you say that to her, if you say, well, no, wait a minute, honey, we need to talk about where you've been, what is she going to say to you? Is she going to say, well, gosh, you're awfully primitive. You're awfully archaic. Gosh, mom, dad, you seem cranky. I thought you were supposed to love me. Now, what would you say to that? I'll tell you what you'd say. You'd say, I'm not being primitive. You'd say, I'm not being mean. You'd say, I love you. I do love you, I have loved you, and I still love you, and that's why we gotta talk about this. 
That's why we got to deal with this. Listen, you can't come in just any old way. You can't approach me casually. Now, friends, listen to me. This is what the temple means. Because the Bible says we are in the same situation. And here's the reality. Unless you're sitting here and you're just a meaningless accident, you have a creator. And if you have a creator, then everything you are is his. Everything you have is his. Listen to me. Your talents, your money, your body, all that you have is his. Now the question for humanity is this. Do we honor God that way as if it's his? And I just say by and large as human beings we don't. Because to one degree or another we act as if we're our own masters. What do we call our money? We call it our money don't we? We call it our own sexuality. We call it our own identity. We call it our own choices. We call it our own freedoms. And we do what we want to do with them. And nobody better tell us what to do with those things. And as a result, every time you decide, I want to meet with God, according to God, that issue has to come up. What is going to be done in your life about the breach? See, they knew If you approach God, you have to come with some kind of payment. A blood payment has to be made. Why? Because the wages of sin is what? It's death. And payment was made in this century by animal sacrifices. Now, this is a system that existed among many cultures. But listen, God always meets people where they are through the culture that exists. And so God set up a way to deal with this through the blood of animals. But... It was a good thing and it was a bad thing. For example, the book of Hebrews tells us on the one hand it was a good thing because it showed people you couldn't approach God in any old way. It showed people that God is holy and it showed people that sin has to get dealt with. And you know what else it showed? It showed that God in his grace is willing to do something to deal with our sin. Here's the problem. It wasn't perfect. And it wasn't perfect because it was incomplete. And it could never be completely effective. In fact, let me illustrate this for you. Let's go to the book of Hebrews and do a quick Bible study here. If you just pull up this next scripture for me. Notice this. He says the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again over and over. Let's keep going. Year after year they were repeated, but they were never able to provide the perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided the perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers, notice this, would have been purified once for all time. And their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead... Those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. See, he says you could never completely get a clear conscience through this system. Because every time you did it, you realized what a terrible sinner I am. Year, notice, after year, after year it reminded them. So, so I need you to picture this. I'm giving you a lot of background. I want you to picture this. So here's Jesus, and he walks into the temple, and he looks around And he begins to act as if he owns the place. He looks around and he sees what's going on in this temple and he starts telling people, you know what? I want my house 
to be a place where you really pray. I don't want my house to be a place of ritual. I don't want my house to be a place of religion where people just come in and go through the motions. He says, this needs to be a place where you meet God. And so he walks into this temple and he says, I'll tell you what, things are about to change here in my house. Now, I give you all of that background to get to this question, and this is the heart of the message right here. Watch this. What does the cleansing of the temple actually mean? What does the cleansing of the temple mean? Well, I'm going to give you a few practical things. I want for you to write these down. First of all, it means this for you and me. Number one, it means that Jesus is demanding spiritual reality. I've already read it, but let me just say it again. He says, my temple will be a place of prayer or a house of prayer for all the nations. And he's upset (laughs) because people aren't praying. People aren't really meeting God. They're not really honoring the whole purpose of the temple. And when he entered and he saw the sellers, who were the sellers, by the way? I've already mentioned Jews, right? They've come from all over the world to make their sacrifice. By the way, you got to understand this. If Jews are coming from all over the world, are they going to bring their own animal? No. Why? Because their animal's going to die along the way. You had to have the perfect, unblemished sacrifice. Where are they going to get their sacrifice? When they arrive, they're going to go to wherever they're selling animals to make the sacrifice. It's hard to bring an animal. You guys get the idea. So you guys understand why a large, lucrative business would grow up around animal sacrifice. Because Jews are coming all over, and that's the place that they need to buy. Oh, and they're coming from all over the place. So what else do they need? They, just, they don't just need the animal. What else do they need? They need money. And they're coming from all over the world where there's different what? Currencies. So who do you need? You need money changers. And that's not bad. You need animal sellers. Now, I'm going to ask you, money changers, animal sellers. Guys, listen to me. Is there anything wrong with that? No. There's nothing wrong with it. Not necessarily. But they're inside the temple. The place where you should be praying. The place where you should be concentrating. Now, You want to get an idea of what it was like inside the temple? How many of you, everybody watching, how many of you have ever been to the San Luis Obispo Farmer's Market? Anybody been there? Take a look. You know, got a little picture of it here. If you've been to the San Luis Obispo on a Thursday night, for example, when we used to like to go, or a Saturday, you know, it's just filled with people. Vendors everywhere. Now, what if you said to me, hey, Pastor Shane, let's just move this Farmer's Market into North Point's Worship Center. Do you think we could actually have a worship service? Do you think that this would be a place where we can concentrate and pray? No, you couldn't really worship in situations like this. The best you could do is buy a sheep or a goat, an animal, offer the sacrifice, go through the ritual and get out. And it seems to me that what Jesus is saying, men and women, he's saying, I want from your life spiritual reality. I don't want you to just go through the motions. I don't want you to come in and worship and then get out. Check. Done. He says, I want you to know God. 
I don't want you just to believe the right thing. I don't want you just to go through the ritual. I don't want you just to go through the motions. My temple will be a house of prayer. Is there spiritual reality in your life? Or is your life more like that temple? What does that look like? You might be full of religious busyness, but there's no real connection. You might be full of working for the Lord and making your sacrifices. There's, there's a whole lot of activity, but there's no real reality. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus' cleansing of the temple is his way of saying, I demand a spiritual reality from your life. Now, that's not all he's saying. Here's the second thing he's saying. Write this down. He's saying, I also demand authority. I also demand authority. Why? Because by Jesus cleansing the temple, what he's really saying, you guys got to catch this, this is the most amazing thing. It gets me so excited. I'm so excited that you're here with me. I get to tell this to you. This is amazing. Because what Jesus, are you as excited as I am? What Jesus is really saying when, when he goes in is he's saying, I'm God. Now, it's interesting that I say that because I like to talk to a lot of people who are non-believers or skeptics. And it's interesting because they always ask me, hey, I've heard that Jesus never actually says he's God. Or they say, is there any place where you can show me that Jesus actually claims to be God? And I tell them, right here. Because he says, whose house? He says, my house, my temple will be a house of prayer. And what does he do? Notice, Jesus comes in, he comes in, right? And he looks at his house and he says, oh, no, 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 this will never do. And what does he do is, he starts rearranging the furniture. He starts moving stuff around, he's placing this over here, he's moving this over, he's whipping people, he's yelling at people. Now, only the person who owns the house can rearrange the furniture, is that true? Do strangers come into your house and rearrange the furniture? You follow me? He says, look, if I'm in my house, I'm going to rearrange the furniture and I'm going to make it the way it needs to be. Now listen to me, friends. Do you know what a Christian is? A Christian is somebody who has had a personal Palm Sunday. Let me say that again. Who is a Christian? A Christian is somebody who has had a personal Palm Sunday. Let me explain. In fact, do you remember what happened on Palm Sunday? The full story? I've read to you part of it when he goes into the temple. Pastor Kyle read that. But let's look at the rest of the story here. Go ahead and look at Matthew 21. It says, as they, Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt tied by her. Untie them and bring them to me. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your what? Your king. Come on, say it again. King, I like that. Say that to yourself. He's king. He's king. See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. 
the crowds that went ahead of Jesus and those that followed shouted. What does it say? Come on, everybody. It says, Hosanna to the Son of David. Let's read it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? What's a Palm Sunday? Let's go back to the question. A Palm Sunday is a day in which Jesus rides in. It's a day in which we shout Hosanna. By the way, Hosanna means save me. Hosanna means Lord save. What is a Palm Sunday? A Palm Sunday is when the king rides in and you say, Lord, save me, and Jesus rides into your heart and you say, you're the king, right on in, come on in, Hosanna. And what is the first thing he does? He starts rearranging the furniture. He starts moving stuff around. Now, how do you know that Jesus is in your heart? He has the right to move things around. Come on. Is this room still empty or is somebody here? He gets to rearrange the furniture. You see, whenever God shows up, he doesn't, listen, when God shows up in your life, does God look at you and say, hey, is it okay if I move the couch over there? No, is that, is that the king? No, no, no. God doesn't say to you, hey, is it okay if I put a calling on your life? Would that be okay? Is it okay if you stop sleeping with that person? Would that be all right? Is it okay if I tell you how to spend the money that I've allowed you to make? Is that okay? No, that's not what the king does. Does the king say, is it okay if you start treating people with deference and kindness and showing them love even if you don't agree with them? No, no, no. That's not the king. When the king shows up, the king says, I created you. I made you. And get ready, because I'm about to rearrange some stuff. Now let me tell you guys something. And take this to heart, no matter where you are listening to this. If you have a God who never challenges you, if you have a God who never convicts you, if you have a God who's not correcting you, if you have created a God in your image that lets you do whatever you decide or you want, you have an imaginary God. You don't have God. Do you realize? This whole temple illustration, it's the perfect example. Do you know why? Guys, you got to follow this. Listen, here's why. Because was there anything wrong with money changing and selling? No. There's nothing wrong with it. It's part of the sacramental and sacrificial system that we're talking about. But here's the problem with it. It was on the inside. And it was crowding out God. You know, one of the ways you can tell that Jesus is in your life is he starts to pinpoint things that aren't necessarily wrong things, but they're too far on the inside. They're good things. They're not necessarily wrong things in and of themselves. Now, maybe there are wrong things, and he needs to rearrange that furniture, but he'll also talk about the things that actually are right. And he'll say, but you've got them on the inside, and that's not where they belong. They're too far in. Is there anything in your life 
but it's crowding God out. Listen, nothing should be God in your life except God. Why? Because nothing can bear the burden of being God without destroying you except for God. Only God can bear the burden of being God. And Jesus, if he's in your life, he's going to show you that he has authority by pushing those things back where they belong. Do you see? Number three, write this down. What's Jesus saying by cleansing the temple? Jesus is declaring in this moment that he is the final temple. Why? Well, you'll see this because in 20 verse 2, the very last passage, after he's cleansed the temple, they come to him. And they say to him, if you remember, they say, by what authority do you do these things? In fact, in the Gospel of John, look at what it says. It says, then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered, look what he says. Come on, guys, you've got to catch this. This is so good. He answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And you know what? They didn't get it. <laughs> Now, today we get it because he's talking about himself. He's talking about his body. Remarkably, Jesus comes in to this big thing called the temple and he says, I'm actually now the place where you meet God face to face. He comes in and he says, I am the sacrifice. And every one of the Gospels, on the day that Jesus died, at the moment that Jesus died, look what it says. It says, when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he said, Eloi, Eloi, lame sabachthani. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And God's presence was now available to all. What does that mean? Listen to me. Here's what it means. It means that if you believe that Jesus died... If you put your faith in the resurrection, which we're talking about next week, if you've received him, the same presence that existed in that temple comes to life in you. And look what it says. It says the earth shook and the rocks split. And it says when the centurion and those who were with them were guarding Jesus and saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely this was the Son of God. And when you unite with Jesus, by the way, here's some great news. You ready for it? Everybody say, I'm ready, if you're ready. When you unite with Jesus, who is the temple, <laughs> you become a part of that temple too. Do you know that? Look what it says here. Just go to this next scripture. This is powerful. Watch this. Peter says, as you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus, the temple, he says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like what? Living stones are being built into a what? Spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Today, I'm especially excited on Palm Sunday because it happens to be a baptism Sunday. We're going to baptize people next weekend on Easter. We're going to baptize people today. But what is baptism all about? By the way, look at the joy on his face. <laughs> what is baptism about? It's about saying, Jesus, I want to be built into your spiritual house. I'm tired of my house being empty and unoccupied by you. 
I invite you to come and love in me, live in me, and live through me. And through him, Jesus says, you can have this kind of a spiritual reality. And he says, and through me, your life is a mess. He says, but you know what I'll do? I'll start to rearrange the furniture. Why? Because the cross changes everything. Now, you know what? A lot of people are afraid of that. I talk to people all the time who say, oh, pastor, I would love this, but I don't want to give up control of my life. I don't want somebody coming in. You say, I like the furniture where it is. I don't want somebody coming in and rearranging the furniture. You say, Pastor, I'd be happy to be a Christian if I can just hold on to this and this and this. But friends, don't you see? Don't you see? You're bargaining with God. And you're turning the temple of God into a marketplace where you bargain. And God says, no. God says, I'll give you everything. If you give me everything, he says, that's the deal of the new covenant. Isn't that awesome? I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and then I'm going to share with you some great news. But can I lead us in a prayer right now? Let's go to Jesus. Jesus, thank you for this Palm Sunday. And thank you that, Lord, we could know you. And by knowing you, we can become like you. In this place today, outdoors, online, wherever we are, Lord, we invite you into our life. Come in and rearrange the furniture. Have your way, God. We yield to you. We surrender to you. Would you just pray this prayer with me? Let's do a, let's do a spiritual exercise together. Just, just lift your hands before the Lord, just like this. Just like this. And you just pray this prayer out loud with me. Jesus, come into my life. Change me. I know your cross. What you did can change everything. I invite you to do it. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you for praying that.